1862, a seemingly normal boy was born in Victorian England. It wasn't until he was about 20 months old that his grotesque deformities began to form. These deformities would continue to grow and cover much of his body, in fact, encompass most of his head and much of his right side as he grew older. And these abnormalities would actually grow to define him. This boy was born and named Joseph Merrick, and he was truly loved by his mother. Even after the defects began to cover his body as a child, she still encouraged him, loved him, cared for him. She nurtured him. She encouraged him to go to school and sent him to school to be educated. She fostered a a love for books, and she encouraged him in his faith in the Lord. When he asked once why he looked the way he did, his mother told him a story about when she was pregnant, she saw an elephant, and it scared her. And it was mostly an attempt to bring some levity to something that was very serious for him. And that probably served to give him the name that most people know him by. He's called the Elephant Man. That's how he was known in the freak show. His mother died when he was 11, and his father was not so kind to him. He would often beat him. His stepmother, like an old fairy tale, also mistreated him and treated him poorly and took him out of school and actually sent him to a cigar shop, thinking it was easy work. He could sit in the back and not disturb anyone. The trouble was his deformities in his right arm were becoming very difficult for him to actually continue to use. And so oftentimes he would be slow at his work and he wouldn't accomplish much. And so he didn't bring home very much. He was told that he had to work to eat. And when he could not provide anything, he would sit at the table and his stepmother would give him a meager amount and say, you didn't even earn this. So this was the environment that he grew up in. When he could no longer work at the cigar shop. In fact, he was let go because even though he sat in the back with a burlap sack over his head, he was horrifying to the customers, so they let him go. His father, not seeming a very bright man, brought him into his own profession to be a salesman, a door-to-door salesman, selling gloves, gloves that he could not wear on either of his hands. And instead of actually bringing in any income, Every door he opened, he was met with a horrified and surprised scream, normally a slam. Not a very successful business for Joseph. He attempted to do his best, but actually he lost his license to do sales work because he terrified the community. After this, he was essentially put out of the house because he could not provide for himself. He went to work in a workhouse, which if you know anything about Victorian England, a workhouse is pretty much just a dormitory for slave labor. So he would work two five-hour shifts a day, encouraged to pray. He was fed, but that was no life that he could endure. He also wasn't very good at the menial task that they gave him because of his deformities. And so he left He ended up being homeless for a while, taken advantage of and pushed out of town. And 
He did end up eventually joining a sideshow, a freak show. And oddly enough, this is where he started to gain some of his dignity back. Within the show, there were others who were also judged by others for their appearance, and so he found a community there. He started to become less of an animal and more of a man. He started to write. In fact, he wrote a small autobiography of himself that he would sell. It was normal for them to pass the hat around when people came to his exhibit. He said, no, he did not want to do that. And he told his boss when they attempted to do so, he said, we are not beggars, are we, Thomas? And so he was gaining a sense of dignity. Well, the laws were changing in England and soon the sideshows and the freak shows were seen as Grotesque and taking advantage, even though this is where he actually thrived. And so he lost his job. As the shows shut down, he found, he found pity and, and actually found a friend in a man named Dr. Uh, Treves. Dr. Treves took care of him. At this point, he had saved enough money to pay for many of his own things from the show, and so the doctor took care of him and, and really wanted to care for him. So he introduced him to some nice people, kind people, to come and just to see him. And there's one story of the first time where he really understood that one thing he wanted was some kind of companionship. And so he found a widow who said that she would come and sit with him and talk with him. And when she came, she came in and she was so kind She walked in and she smiled, shook his hand, sat down, had a very nice conversation, and walked out. She would come to visit him many times after that, but after that first time, he wept. It was the first time that a woman had smiled at him since his mother had passed away. And so he lived this kind of life here, actually developing himself. He began to write more, he wrote poems. He would meet more people. In fact, he started to be understood and known for his personality. He was still understood as the elephant man, but now he was an oddity because he was actually articulate. He even met with dukes and duchesses in private engagements. At the age of 27, he was starting to feel a measure of what we would call normality. And so one night he decided he would attempt to sleep like a normal person. He always slept in a sitting upright position. And so wanting one more measure of normality, he laid down to go to sleep. And his deformities were so heavy on his head that when he lay down to sleep, it actually broke his neck. And that's how he died. In his correspondence, if he was writing a book or a letter, he would always include a poem at the end. Tis true my form is something odd, but blaming me is like blaming God. Could I create myself anew, I would not fail in pleasing you. 
If I could reach from pole to pole or grasp the ocean with a span, I would be measured by the soul, the minds, the standard of the man. Go and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. This morning we're going to be looking at a passage that's very well known. In fact, chapter 7, verse 1 is today one of, if not the most quoted verses in the entire Bible. It once was John 3.16, and now this has definitely surpassed it. I just want to take a look at verse 1 first. Judge not that you will not be judged. This has become the mantra of so many. Judge not. Don't judge me. And our society is is such that we're able to dwell on ourselves and our position in such a way that this has become the response. Um, It would not be difficult to talk about that aspect of, of people using this phrase or this verse as a way of answering to even the smallest um, sort of confrontation or the, even the smallest note of correction. But I, I, I read this story before, just so that you, you can know that we're, we're not making light of this idea and this concept of judging or judging others. And there are many that feel the, the sting of this judgment. And, and it's because of that that I believe that this verse has become so prominent today. We can actually credit, most likely, the late Tupac Shakur for popularizing this notion, actually, uh, and the phrase, only God can judge me. While he wasn't the first to say it, the fact that his subsequent death came soon after these words sort of solidified them in the public mind, and it became a phrase to be used for all sorts of occasions, brought to people's lips by very popular Performer And whether he really intended the words to be used in this way, they're used today to keep someone from questioning your own thoughts, your own opinions, your own words. Don't judge. Even to the point that now someone espousing an opinion, if the facts are incorrect, it is seen as judging to correct them. So we're seeing a backlash so hard against judgment. It's become the unanswerable statement to any behavior. It's the showstopper. Right? It's the irrevocable statement that you can make. It's this ticket that you can cash. You can do whatever you want. That's where it's starting to become. But it would be a miss to not note someone like a Joseph Merrick who was unjustly judged by his appearance, by no fault of his own. There are those who do receive that type of judgment. We'd say that today we're above that, 
I'd say that we are not. And that still continues. That idea, that concept of someone being judged by their appearance or by uh, a very small notion of who they are or what they've stated, this is just a small part of what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 7. It would be a crime to simply take that one phrase, judge not, and let it stand as the understanding for this whole passage. But it is important to note where we are in our society and in our culture in regards to this. It's very important. Uh, Less than a week ago, on September 10th, it was Suicide Prevention Day. And I happened to be reading through a news aggregator and an article from the USA Today popped up. I don't know if any of you saw it. It was discussing this concept and this idea of child suicides. I had not really thought about this, but there's now a growing statistic of children we're talking ages 6 to 10, who are committing suicide. Part of this could be, simply as a child, you've got impulsive nature, there's, there's something there, and not really understanding the finality of death. All right, we have those aspects. But what we have in our culture today is we have uninterrupted, sun up to sun down, judgment on very small and simple things. And, and while we can, we can talk about that and saying none of us should judge, you shouldn't judge, there are many things that, that happen. I mean, some of us growing up, depending on what generation you were, there's, there's been varied levels of taunting and teasing on playgrounds and other things. I, I remember. Anyone else get taunted or teased on a playground? And I remember hearing, you know, sticks and stones can break my bones. Words can never hurt me. Well, today, words are actually seen as the enemy. Now, now children say words hurt, which of course they always did. It always hurt, but not in an ultimate type of pain. And you know what? When, if you were growing up without social media, the internet, anything else, it happened at school and then you'd leave and you wouldn't have it anymore. But now taunting and judgment follow. Let's be honest, this is not just a problem for children. How many of us have been if we take a moment to think about it, so adversely affected by, by words on social media or something that presented itself in a convenient way like that. I mean, a lot of us have experienced this. This is, this is becoming a terrible, terrible thing. And I, so I, I say all these things to say we don't want to minimize that part. Okay, we need to bring that with us because I have heard teachings on this where they say that's not the context of this verse. The context is something else which is true, but it's also not true. That is a part, that is a small part that needs to come along while we go through this. And so to make sure that we don't make light of that, let's make sure that we bring that with us as we go through this passage, this idea and this concept of an unjust judgment. We could even say, you know, for yourself, if you've met anyone new, that first first impressions are so important but is that the totality of who you are? Really isn't, and, and it can't be. But for many of us, we make snap judgments about a lot of people based on one small little statement or one little comment. And so we need to bring that with us while we go through the context of this, because it is a part. It's not the totality, but it is a part. And as we go through this and see the whole context, I think we can see where that 
actually does fit. So Matthew chapter 7, I want to look at the first two verses. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, will be judged to you. So the idea here is not simply the first statement, judge not. The second statement is actually the point. And the idea is that if you judge and when you judge, because we all do, to a certain extent, we all do. Whatever measure of judgment you bring is the measure of judgment that will be brought back to you. That idea is not exclusive to this particular passage, this particular paragraph here. Uh, this idea, this phrase of judge not, is just one, one part of it. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. Look at verse 14 and 15. If you look at this passage here, for if you forgive others their trespasses, what's it say? The Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's the exact same idea. It's the same thing. It's just stated from a different direction. If you forgive, to the extent that you forgive, is the forgiveness that you will be shown. This is actually very much the same idea, the very same concepts that we see. So here's how you apply that, right? Ponder for a moment the greatness of the Father's forgiveness. And the more that you ponder it, make that the forgiveness that you give. And it's the idea, it, it, it does go back to this concept of the golden rule, right? Treat others as you'd have them treat you. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you if you learned it in old King Jimmy. Right? That's, that's the concept, that's the idea. We need to ponder this and think about this in a very real sense, how we treat other people is how the Lord will respond to us. That should scare you. Does that not scare you? So when we get to this passage here in Matthew 7, we say, oh man, God judged me like this. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, we've already been talking about it. This is not a new concept. This is a continuing theme throughout this. How you treat others and how God is treating you. This is a theme that we pick up here. So the judgment we extend is the measure to which we will receive it. All right? Matthew 18. Matthew 18, we're not going to read through the whole thing, but there's a parable taught here. This is one of those parables that feels like a weird parable for Jesus to give. It's on the list of weird ones. All right? Matthew 18... Uh, I'll condense it. You have the story of a servant. You can probably see from the heading that you see in your Bible what that is. It might be the ungrateful servant or something to that, to that measure. But there's a servant, and he owes a debt to his master. What's the amount that it says in there? What's it say? It's a crazy amount. It's like 10, I think it says 10,000 talents. Okay? I actually did the calculation. You know how much that is in today's monies? So that's gold. A talent of gold is 75 pounds. 
gold. So I don't know how the servant borrowed this much, but he owes his master $1.4 million. First of all, how do you borrow that much? Second of all, how do you lend that much? And he goes to his master and he said, and probably rightly so, master, I can't pay this back. I'm sure his master said, yeah, I was wondering when we were going to actually talk about this. No, the master says, you know what? I forgive it. Not to pay me. $1.4 million. It's a good ledger to have taken out of your responsibility, right? Oh, thank you. And he was very thankful. Well, he leaves there, and there's another servant that owes him money. Now, what does it say there? I think it says 100 denarii. Yeah? A denarii is a small measure of silver. In fact, some of your translations might even say a penny. Um, the amount, if you calculate out the weight of that, and it's very difficult, it gets into weird stuff historically and how the Romans manipulated the money system, but I fudged the numbers and I got something that I thought would work. It's about 200 bucks. 200 bucks. So what does he do for somebody who owes him 200 bucks? What's it say? He chokes him, like jumps across the table and chokes the guy over 200 bucks. So he just came from his master and was forgiven $1.4 million. And then he turns around and the dude who owns him 200 bucks, he's trying to kill. This doesn't make any sense to me. Does this make sense to you? That's the whole point. It's not supposed to make sense. It's supposed to be a gasp moment. <gasps> what? Why in the world would he do that? It's supposed to be ridiculous because you'd say, why in the world would someone not just forgive the 200 bucks? What's the master do? What's it say? The master hears about it and says, I forgave you 10,000 talents. And you couldn't forgive your servant? Well, I'm sending you over to the, it says the jailers in some translations. One word you could use is the torturers. But it was basically, it's the people who get the money. Right? They apply the thumb screws. Uh, he sends them over to him and says, well, you need to pay me back then. Because I forgave you. Now you got to pay me back. So think about that. Verse 35. Matthew 18, verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now we add the other element. Now it's a heart issue. Maybe it doesn't even have to do with money. If you don't forgive your neighbor or your brother by, uh, in your heart, Father's not going to forgive you. This is not an exclusive idea to this sermon in Matthew 7. This is an enduring thought, an enduring idea. This idea that how you live and act in the family of God, the Lord's going to give you back that way. How do you forgive? How do you love? Let's go back to Matthew 7. It seems like we change subjects all of a sudden. We actually just get an explanation of what we were just talking about. Back in Matthew chapter 7, look at verse 3. Matthew 7, verse 3. 
Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? I like King James, and that one's the plank, the plank in your eye. You don't see the log that's in your brother's eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log out of your eye, then you'll see clearly to take out the speck from your brother's eye. This is a weird word picture. It's meant to be ridiculous. This is one of those where you can see Jesus has a little bit of a sense of humor. He's kind of throwing in there. This is a pretty intense conversation, so we'll lighten it up a bit. So imagine a guy who has straight up a plank poking out of his eye. I mean, you have to imagine it in the extreme because that's how Jesus is telling it. And he's saying to the other guy, oh, you got something in your eye. Let me help you. So not only is it ridiculous that this guy has a plank sticking out of his eye, but he's also trying to help this other guy that has like a sliver. I was like, you're ridiculous. And it's supposed to be ridiculous. It's supposed to have, not, it's not like laugh out loud funny. It's like a little chuckle. Like, it's, it's supposed to be that. It's like, that's, that's stupid. Why would, why would someone do that? That's the whole point. It is ridiculous. That's how God sees it. When he sends someone else, he's like, why in the world are you judging that person that way? Don't you understand what I've forgiven you? What in the world are you doing? That's ridiculous. This is how God is viewing this, because he can view the heart and the intentions and the mind. This is ridiculous. And it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be ridiculous so we remember it. Yeah, that is pretty silly. But notice that he doesn't say, you have a plank in your eye. You can't help him with his speck. What does Jesus say? Take the plank out. And then help your brother with the speck. See, in the context when Jesus gives it, it's not an accusatory thing. It's not something that's not a game of gotcha, right? Ha, you got a speck in your eye. The idea is you're there to help the person. But first, you have to make yourself able to help. So remove the plank in your eye so you can do it. That, that's the idea behind it. So going back to verse 1, can we, in the rest of this passage, get this idea that no one is supposed to judge anyone ever for anything? Because that's how it's understood by a lot of people. Only God can judge me. That's not what this passage is teaching at all. It's saying the degree to which you judge, that's how you will be judged. You determine the meter. Look at Corinthians chapter 10. Remember that Jesus is speaking here to his disciples. That's the context of this sermon. He's speaking to his 12. He's talking to people who are in the inside group. These are the people who know him. They're, They're dedicated to following after him, right? So he's preaching this to them. So then the question is, does this part of the sermon apply just to believers or does it apply to everybody? Because you don't really get a whole lot of those sort of mentioned in that particular verse. We don't get a lot of clarification. But look at 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. Therefore, let, and obviously this is in the middle of a conversation or a discussion that Paul's having in his writing here. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. You think you're doing okay and that you're standing fine. You need to take an account of yourself to make sure that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, also provide a, a means of escape, a way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. So we get this idea. You need to watch out for yourself to make sure that you don't fall. There needs to be some introspection. All right? This warns that when you judge others, you've got to remove your planks. I mean, that's, that's essentially what it's saying. You've got to check yourself. Examine. Make sure. There's some inward thought there. Look at Galatians 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Growing all over. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual must restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. We get the explanation and the heart behind this. If you see someone who is struggling, you see someone with a speck, our heart should be to restore such a one, to help that person, not to make them an exhibition, not to harm them, not to badmouth them, not to gossip. Our intention should be to restore, to bring them back into full measure. With a spirit of gentleness, gentleness. You know where it's difficult to show gentleness? In text. Everyone chuckles because they've all had that conversation with someone after a misunderstanding with text that we send to people. An email is so easy, it's so convenient, you send the thing off. Emojis help, but they don't always clarify. Little smiley face. That was still super hurtful, even with a smiley face. Shouldn't have said that. There's also a level of anonymity that you receive through a lot of our communication. Even though we know who it is, there's this feeling like I'm not standing there in front of the person. A moment of clarity in your own heart. Take a moment, look inside. How many of you have sent something off and immediately after you did said, I would never say that to that person? I've done it. Look at me. I'm putting my hand up. Anyone else? Man, I'm feeling alone. But that's, that's something that we, we've done. We do that. It's easy for us to do. We have to make sure that our intentions are known, that our intentions are there, and that we have a spirit of gentleness. Some of us need to really think through, what does it mean to have a spirit of gentleness? Think about explaining something difficult to a child. Some of you, that's a bad example, because you'll just tell them just how it goes, right? But when their pet dies, how do you have that conversation? Well, pets die. Get over it. There's a spirit of gentleness that needs to be there. There's tears. There's time. There's waiting. Look at how Job was comforted, in quotes, by his friends. His friends come off kind of like jerks. Well, Job, I just can't help but think that you probably did this to yourself, man. Your whole family's dead. It's probably on you. Probably need to think about that. Thanks, Eladab. So glad you came. <laughs> right? No, what did his friends do initially? Initially, they had the right course of action. They came with him. He's in mourning. What did they do? They sat there with him for, for a while. For days, I think, without looking back on it. Gentleness. Sometimes 
You don't have to say it. I know there's this prevailing other weird thing on social media, which is speaking power or speaking truth to power, but not to your friend who's suffering. Don't do, that's not necessary. Don't do it. And you know what? Sometimes you just need to go over to that person's house and go sit with them. Obviously, it's hard if it's somebody who lives across country, but you understand what I mean. Check for our planks. I think the most clarity we can get from this kind of concept is from actually 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If there was ever a church that really needed someone to come over and take all the different specks and planks and boards and all sorts of things out of a whole bunch of people's eyes, it was Corinth. If you read through Corinth, that church is messed up. Let's be honest. But he calls them brothers, and he encourages them, and he loves them, and he tells them the truth, and he does it in such a way it seems very encouraging at times. Look at this verse here. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So this is obviously in the midst of a conversation. Sounds a little harsh. It fits in the context. But the idea and the concept here is, why are you worried about people outside the church? We need to care for our family. If we see someone who's in need of understanding how their actions have affected somebody. That's our job. We need to lovingly come alongside someone. There, there are fitting places for discernment and with a spirit of gentleness to restore people back to a full understanding. And we need to do that. That's our job in the church. That's what we do for each other. We're a family. We're the household of God. This is what we do. We care for each other. And yet the perspective from the outside is that, you know, most firing squads in church all stand in a circle to shoot the person in the middle, right? That's, that's, that's the perception that a lot of people have about the church. We can't do that. Refuge, we need to be different. We need to love. Now it says, purge the evil person from among you. What this is, this is clarifying and showing, and we'll see the context of that a little later on in the next part of chapter seven, so we'll get there. But this idea is someone who is harming and hurting others, we restore them. If it comes out that actually they're they're not sheep, they're wolves. They shouldn't be here. They're here to harm. They're here to to hurt. That's, That's also part of the role of the church is to say it's not healthy. You're hurting people. And at some point, there's, there's a point where they, they should leave. Right? Thankfully, it's very rare that that kind of thing happens. But it can happen. And definitely for the situation going on in Corinth, there were some of those opportunities there. So, so Paul is speaking to them and saying this in that particular context. Um, but Corinthians 5 gives us a really nice paradigm. We care for each other outside or inside. We help to to judge and discernment properly with the proper spirit, restore each other, love each other, care for each other, uplift each other. People outside, what, what are we to do? Are we to judge those outside? Paul brings it up here. I have a shocker of a statement. If you have a pen, you can write it down. Sinners sin. totally true they do should it surprise you that someone who doesn't have any connection with the Lord at all acts as though they 
It's like they don't care what God thinks at all. They're doing terrible things. They're hurting people. Yeah. Because they don't know who God is. And if we say, like, hey, you really shouldn't be doing that, the Bible says that we should be kind to one another, that's not going to be received very well by most people who are outside because they don't care. So some of us need to recalibrate a little bit. Do we have a place in pointing to judge someone outside the church? You're a sinner. Yeah, no, duh, they're a sinner. Of course they're, and, and, and we could tell people that. Just have got to let you know you're a sinner. And there's a place for proper application of understanding to help them to understand their position before God and to explain the gospel. But simply stating that they're a sinner and going to hell is a statement of fact without any context. And it may be true. That's why the, there's a level of hypocrisy there. Because let's turn it back into the context that we have in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus in verse 5 says, you hypocrite. Take the plank out of your own eye. There is this connection back to this understanding of heightened righteousness. I'm righteous, other people are not. They don't practice the same level of righteousness that I have. Right? We talked about that many, many times through this, through this series. But this idea that you need to take the log out of someone's eye or your own eye before you take out the speck. Think about this. To what degree do we judge others? Okay? So if we're talking about the concept of the sinners outside of the body, outside of the household of God, okay? What was it that saved you when you were in such a position? What saved you? Shame? Someone just yelling at you? I would venture to guess your salvation story has a large dose of grace in it and probably individuals that cared enough to explain something to you. What measure of grace did you receive when you first believed? What sort of level of understanding did someone provide you? What sort of love was shown to you? That is what you came to expect And it's what you've continued to expect after being a part of the church. Why would we turn around and have a different standard for how we treat others? Why would you have a different measure of grace offered to someone outside the church than what you were offered? This doesn't make any kind of sense. And I believe that is our plank. That's what we need to take out of our eye. What is going to save a soul? To stand before a judge and to receive judgment does not save a person. Grace saves. Specifically applied because our actions, our words, our thoughts, those things that would separate us from God because they're rebellious, these things that harm others in all the various shades, all of those things were all dealt with on the cross. And we were offered new life through the resurrection. So why would we offer anything less to anyone else? Why would we offer a good thing on a plate of disgust? Here, I guess you can have some grace. See you later if you get it. Sadly, that's our plank a lot of times. How do we treat other people? 
To the measure with which we give is the measure to which we will receive. One question would be, then do we ignore sin? No. There's no indication that we would ignore it. Look at verse 6. Do not give... Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs. Also like King James, swine. Throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So you do have this concept of when the gospel is offered. It is a free thing. It is a gift thing, but it is a precious thing. Right? It should be offered to all, but I would say that what this actually gives us in context is this idea that you cannot simply stand outside a pack of dogs and throw pearls, throw treasures at it. You can't stand outside a pack of swine and just throw pearls, thinking it'll have an effect. Will it? No, they're just going to stomp around on it and, like it says here, turn and attack you. The idea and the concept that we see, we actually see it enumerated in Matthew chapter 10, which we'll never get to because it's not part of the sermon here, but in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending out his disciples. He's sending out his servants. And one of the things that he says to them, if you go to a place and they do not accept you and they do not receive you, what are they supposed to do? Some of you know. Shake the dust off your feet and walk on. Right? All right. Well, some of us don't even give an opportunity to get any dust on our feet. So we never show up in their yard. Which might be why they told us to leave. But... If we show up and we actually get close enough to understand, to make a discerning call. When Peter and John were walking outside the temple, and Peter heals the one blind or the, the one man who couldn't walk. Oh, no, he's blind. He was blind. Uh, the one blind man who couldn't see. Do you think he was the only one there? Do you think he was the only person who was in need? Do you think he was the only beggar? What was different was that the Spirit was leading him to heal him. Not all. He didn't just, and Jesus didn't do this either. He didn't just apply a blanket healing on the whole crowd. All right, everybody, man, it's getting close to the end of the day. The rest of you just kind of line up. I'm just going to kind of hit you all. It says that he went to individuals. He touched them. He talked with them. He healed people. He didn't heal crowds. He healed people. He healed individuals. Could he have healed entire crowds? Absolutely. Absolutely could have done it. He healed individuals. Why? Because there is a connection. There is a my eyes are meeting your eyes. There is a individual thing here and he could have done it easily he could have just walked around just healed everybody in their houses just walked through town oh Jesus must be here because we're all healed he actually does it one of them says this is the Roman centurion right I know you don't have to come to my house and I'm a Gentile so you probably won't so you can can you just heal my servant Jesus says whoa that's faith yeah your servant's healed and he did so we know that he could but he didn't he does it because he goes to the individual he meets people. And that, I think, is where we need to start to see this. We don't throw our pearls before a pack of swine. We meet with people. And there are some people who reject. And so you know what? We kick the dust off. We move on. It says we're not, we're not kind. We don't set fire to their house and leave. I mean, you know what I mean? Like you could, 
you'd say like, oh, we're, don't go to that person's house. There's none of that. It's just we just move on. That sort of concept and idea. This goes back to verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Here's, here's the other subtle thing that we have here. This idea of, of judging. The Lord is amazing in applying his direction to us. You ever had that feeling where maybe you pass this guy on your way to work every day, but then today for some reason, you put your hand in your pocket, realize you got five bucks, you see the guy's hungry, and there's like a little something in your heart. That five dollars is for that guy. Right? Maybe even think back. That's why I paid cash when I normally use a card. I don't even know why I did that, but now I have five bucks in my pocket. So you give it. And the Lord might be leading you to do that. Why? Because the Lord wants you to give. Is to every, to every time, every person? Maybe not, maybe, but probably not. But the Lord applies those, those, those urges, those things, because it says that the Lord has prepared good works for us to do. And so we'd be the ones to do it. Right? So if that's the case, think about this. Sometimes we will see a person say, nope. They don't get grace. Holy Spirit's leading us to do it. We're like, no. We talk ourselves out of it a lot of times. Let's be honest. We do. The Lord puts on our heart, oh, that person who's sitting on the corner, no, no. Uh, I don't want to talk to that person. I got, I got somewhere to go. I'm not going to do it. We have now judged from an outside perspective. Potentially because we carry the gift of salvation with us, we're determining who should hear and who shouldn't, at least from our own realm of influence, right? Sometimes the Lord is, I'm not saying you, every single person you have to give a track to and have a conversation with, but there are people that the Lord is leading us to talk to, and sometimes we just don't. You know what that is? That's a judgment. No, not that person. Oh, that person is just way into Buddhism, and the conversations go crazy. Lord, no, I don't want to talk to that person. Even though you're really leading me to do it, I don't want to. I don't want. I don't want to deal with it. That's that's a judgment. Holy Spirit, this game of golf with my boss is really just about my career, not the time or place. That's us applying a judgment. No. Not going to do it. Oh, that person is militantly filling the blank, the blank with whatever opposite is your political stance. I just don't want to talk to that person. That's a judgment. Maybe it's not based on how they look, or maybe sometimes it is. That's not your. That's not your gospel to give. That's not you. You didn't generate that grace. It's from the Lord. 
some of us need to get dirt on our feet. Yeah, sometimes we'll kick it off. Sometimes we won't. So the question comes up, who are we judging to be beyond the reach of God's grace? Who should receive mercy? Who should receive that gift of salvation? Who is offered salvation? You have this enduring biblical principle, we reap what we sow. That's what's really being taught here. Are we sowing hope? Are we sowing love? Are we sowing second chances? Third chances? Tenth chances? What are we sowing? Would we withhold salvation from someone who would receive it for fear that they might be a dog or a pig? Part of that pack that would trample? Who would fight us? What are we, what are we judging against? We won't know until it's offered. So in a, I'll ask you this question you can kind of ponder for yourself. If you walk down the street, do we see the man Joseph Merrick or do we see the elephant man? Heavenly Father, God, I pray that, Lord, you would give us a joy, a joy to offer freely what has been freely given to us. Lord, it's not easy sometimes. It's not convenient hardly any time. But Lord, I pray that we would be a people who would respond to your word. We would respond in kindness and in gentleness and in love and in hope, Lord, that we would offer this amazing and free gift of salvation that we have to others. And Lord, if there are others who are within the household, God, who are in need of restoration, rather than beat them over the head or even talk behind their back, Lord, I pray that we would pray for their restoration. And Lord, be ready when you prompt us to help to take out the speck by taking out the big old plank that's in our own eye, God. I pray that we would contemplate within ourselves. Before we judge someone else, Lord, we look inside to see if we are also susceptible and guilty of the same thing. And if we are, God, I pray that we offer grace, the same grace that we have and expect from the Father. Lord, I pray that we would be people who would live out, Lord, proper discernment, Lord, but generous grace. We pray these things. In the name of Jesus, amen.